Pull out your Bibles. That little tiny book of Amos as we continue with the hillbilly prophet. As he lays waste to the snobs. Tonight as we continue, and again I would simply remind you that in the original text, there were no chapters, no verses, no numbers. There wasn't a chapter 4, there wasn't a verse 2. This was a prophecy that was written in its entirety and laid out uh, before the northern kingdom, before the kingdom of Israel primarily. And so this really picks up in chapter 4, building on the issues that the Lord has with Israel. And now he's going to take them to a place and speak to them very authoritatively. And he's going to, to give them uh, some of the toughest command in all of Scripture. And, and in the end of this chapter, what we call chapter 4, some words you don't ever want God to have to say to you. Thus, therefore, I will do to you, O Israel. You do not ever want God to get to that place in your life. The good news is, it's easily avoidable, as long as you don't be obstinate. As long as you don't do as this word is defined, refusing to change your behavior, your ideas, being difficult to deal with, hard to remove, it goes on to say in a full definition, perversely adhering to an opinion, purpose, or course in spite of reason, arguments, persuasion, not easily subdued, remedied, or removed. You you see, when God has to go to these measures, you can pretty much bet that somebody, someone, some group of people has chosen the route of being obstinate. Looking God in the eye and saying, I ain't budging. Hearing the word of the Lord and saying, not going to do it. Knowing what God's word says and refusing to believe that the Lord actually means what he says. And so tonight, Amos chapter 4, a message that I think should encourage you if you're doing what God wants you to do. If you're not, it's going to challenge you. And so tonight, we'll pick up in chapter 4, and let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for your grace when we are hard-headed. God, when our lives are going a direction we know they shouldn't go, uh, you call us back with long-suffering and grace, and mercy, and tenderness. God, help us to never get hard-hearted or hard-headed. Pray that you would minister to us, that you would speak to us by the power of your word, that you would show us, Lord, what it is that we, the church, should know tonight. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing as we begin tonight that I want to remind you is that God is not dealing with the children of Israel. He's not dealing with the northern kingdom in a vacuum. He, he didn't just all of a sudden come on the scene and, and lay it out for them. He didn't come to them in a, in a single vision one time and one time alone and go, look, this is what I want, and they didn't do it. Okay, Why do we know that? Because we have the sum and total of what Scripture has already declared to us. We already know what God has done for, done with, done on behalf of the nation Israel, the Jewish people. We know that God time and time and time and time and time again has instructed them, allowed them an opportunity to change their ways, to repent, go a different direction. He has even gone so far as to bless them. So God is not speaking to them in a vacuum. And as the body of Christ, it's so important for us to understand that the knowledge of God gives gives us cumulative responsibility. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
the longer you walk with the Lord, the more prone you should be to walking with Him instead of opposed to Him. Amen? And that's the picture that's here before us. It is the obstinate person, it's the hard-hearted person, it's the hard-hearted nation that receives the goodness of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, and then still says to God, forget it, I'm not doing it. In essence, you're asking for it. For those of you that have children, you know when your children have gotten to that hard-hearted, obstinate place. Amen? Amen. You've instructed them over and over and over again. You didn't walk up the first time they painted your dog with spots and say, if you do that again, you'll be dead. You usually laugh and you kind of go, you know, it's probably not a good idea. The second time, you know, I think we talked about this before. And so why I'm saying these things to you is God didn't immediately strike out to strike against God gave them grace upon grace upon grace. Turn to Numbers chapter 11 just briefly, if you would. In verse 1, while you're getting there, I'll begin for you. You can catch up. And now when the people complained, and you know the story, the children of Israel were captive for 400 years in Egypt. They're forced into slave labor. Their lives were a living hell, okay? It wasn't, they, they were not at Sandals Resort, okay? They were in Egypt making bricks out of mud with no straw. And they had a quota. And so when the bricks crumbled, they were beaten. If they didn't meet that quota, they were beaten. And if you got beaten enough, you died. Why am I telling you this? Because the devil does not tell you from whence you have come. The devil only says, here's where you are, and you deserve better. And here's how you get better. And so, while we're looking at this, he says to them, Moses writing, he says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was aroused. Again, not in a vacuum. They've been delivered from Pharaoh. They've gone across the Red Sea. They've been preserved in the wilderness. They've been fed by God Himself every single day. They've never missed a single meal. And here they are. They're in the wilderness. And so the fire of the Lord burned among them and even consumed some on the outside of the camp. The picture is there, it got so bad that in some circles of the children of Israel, people were living in such direct disobedience that God said it would be better if they were gone than they infect the rest of the children of Israel. Same people that were delivered from Egypt, miraculously saved, and cared for by God Himself in the wilderness. And then the people cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. One holy guy says, you know what, Lord, let me try and intercede on their behalf. And so he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. It was a place that would be known for the place that God's wrath had been actually revealed to the children of Israel. Notice the next couple of verses. And now the mixed multitude. Why is that said that way? The children of Israel were forbidden from intermarrying with the other nations of the land. They were to be wholly separate unto the Lord. They were gifted by God, called by God, anointed by God, and said, this is who you are, be this. So the mixed multitude, it shows you that in one generation, the children of Israel had forgotten everything that God had done. And they had begun to do exactly what God told them not to do. The mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. You know what that says? That means that the things of the world were so attractive to them that they forgot their God and they followed after the world. They failed to be separate from the world. And so the children of Israel wept again. This is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture in the entire Old Testament to me. 
Because this is, this is the definition of short-sightedness. Who will give us meat to eat? All they cared about was their bellies, their appetite, their cravings. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. Is that even true? It's not even actually true. It was true for some, but certainly not for all. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. That means that they thought life was a living hell. And there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. They had completely forgotten what God had done for them. They had gone so far as to actually accuse God of bringing them to this place for the very purpose of destroying them. That is a stubborn, stiff-necked, and really foolish position to take. Because when God delivers us, He delivers us for a purpose. And we are not to go back to where He delivered us from and bemoan where it is that we used to be. That is the message that He's now going to deliver, not in a vacuum, but because they had been this way for a very long time repeatedly. The point is this. As God works in your life, you had better not take a trip back to Egypt for any reason. Unless you want to deal with the God that showed you grace and tell Him that grace wasn't sufficient because that's what the Jews did. All we can see is your lousy, stinking, rotten manna. Why do I say it that way? Because they had learned to despise the goodness of the Lord. They had spit on the goodness of the Lord. They had told the Lord, we don't even want you anymore. That is where we now come into this story in Amos. This is the same group of people that were delivered into the promised land that hadn't remembered anything that God had done for them. And so verse 1 here in Amos 4, as the stage is now set, hear this word. God is not speaking in a vacuum. He's saying to them, here's the deal, guys. As Amos begins to speak, and you really don't want God's prophet to call you a cow of Bashan. You cows of Bashan. And in this context, it means exactly the same derogatory term that we use to this day. When you call some lady, you cow, it is not because it's good, okay? Not because, oh, you're just wonderful and nice and kind. It's because you have become the very thing that most people despise. Someone who just wanders around feeding them own, their own selves. Who were on the mountain of Samaria. You remember from the last chapter, Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. They believed it to be an impregnable fortress. They dwelled there in tremendous luxury. And so he goes on to say, Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring wine and let us drink. Another one of those passages that I share often. Uh, when God speaks about alcoholic beverage in the Bible, save one time, it's always in a negative context. This is a very negative context. This isn't, oh, let's have a cocktail party. It'll be great. This is, you're an idiot. That's what idiots do. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Not just you, but your kids. You will go out through broken walls. In that day and time, a fortified city was considered safety. An unfortified city, broken down walls, meant that you had lost your security. Everything that you had hoped in was gone. And the fact that the walls were broken down was a sign that you were a lost people. Each one straight ahead of her. And you'll be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. 
Harmon was basically the dump. It was the place that the people of Samaria brought their trash, much like the Hinnom Valley was to Jerusalem. Come to Bethel and transgress. He's now going to speak with tremendous irony and tremendous sarcasm. Bethel was supposed to be a place of worship. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. You know what he's saying? Why don't you go to church and fornicate? Why don't you go to church and have a drunken party? Why don't you go to church and just cuss your head off? Why don't you go to church and just do every filthy, vile thing that the Lord's told you not to do? Because you're going to do it anyway. Why don't you just be honest with God and go do what's in your heart? You see the irony of it. You can see the sarcasm of it. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Why don't you just throw some sin in it? While you're at it, spit in it too. Do whatever you want. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings for this you love. You children of Israel, says the Lord God. You realize what he's saying? He's saying, you have made a mockery of me. And I'm sick to death of your religiousness. I loathe the fact that you still go to church and pretend that everything is okay. While in your heart is the most vile, filthy, disgusting stuff. And if that's what you want... Don't lie to me. Just go do it. The cattle of Bashan were renowned for their fine appearance. They are very similar to our Brahma cattle that we have here. Beautiful. If you know about cows, they are one of the most beautiful cows that are on the face of the earth. Very large, round eyes. Very fine skin. They were beautiful. But there were still cows. And if you know anything about cows, they are not the most sanitary of animals. They're kind of pretty happy rolling in their own filth, actually. And those same people who looked beautiful on the outside still rolled in filth. Still smelled like a cow pasture. There's a reason there's no homes next to Norco, okay? There's a reason. My day and time, the dairy farmers where I used to live said, that's the smell of money. But it doesn't really smell like money, does it? God's being very, 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 very direct with them, while at the same time letting them get engaged in the thinking process. Look, guys, you still smell like a cow. You're still rolling in filth like a cow. And furthermore, what you're doing, I see. You're living in luxury. The Latin word that's translated luxury actually means to live in excess. It means not just to have nice things. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. Matter of fact, if you have them, they're a blessing from the Lord. But they're His They belong to Him. They're not yours ever. You get the benefit and the blessing of them being in your possession for a time, but they are His possessions. They always belong to Him. And the people in this story, the Jewish people, had taken everything that they have and they had used all of it for their own satisfaction. Squandered it, in essence, on high living And I have to confess, and probably some of you do the same thing, you know, it's pretty easy to go, man, I'd like to have a 135-foot-long yacht. And then you realize how many people could be fed for the tens of millions of dollars that something like that would actually cost, and uh, millions more that it costs to fuel it and run it and put it in in a dock somewhere. And so he's talking about what we would call that excessive living of the ultra wealthy. They were all living like that. 
They had forgotten everybody down in the valley. So many of the comforts of life, as David Thoreau wrote in his classic book, Walden, he said so many of those things are not only indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. Not only can you do without a $4,000 purse or a $10,000 set of golf clubs or a 250 or a $5 million car, you can do without all. Those things are not essentials to life. And as far as God's concerned, he looks at it and he says, whose wealth is that really? It's mine. And I gave it to you so that you could bless other people. Sure, you can have a reasonable living. It's, it's fine to enjoy yourself. It's okay to take you know, a trip or a vacation. It's fine. Those things are all fine. But to live beyond those things in the world of excess has always been an affront to God. And it remains an affront to God. There is no place on this earth especially for people in ministry, to have multiple million-dollar homes and several of them. There is no place on this earth for us to live in that type of excess. Period. Period. Moderation. What's left over? We should be using for the good of the Lord. To live in luxury, to go beyond what we really need and to ignore the needs of others has always been an affront to God. And so he says, don't do it. This isn't what I want for you. And the fact that you're now sitting there makes you just like the children of old who sat in the wilderness and bemoaned what God had done for them. Not understanding that God sees it all. You see, what was really going on was they were living in hypocrisy. Kind of this irony that he's using. You see, Bethel was a special place to the Jewish people. It was where Abraham went to sacrifice. At one time, the Ark of the Covenant was kept at Bethel. It was the site of the king's chapel in the day of Amaziah. Read Judges. You see what the Lord was doing at Bethel. And now it had become a place that the pagan gods were worshipped that all manner of evil was undertaken. God sees those things. I've shared with you before, I'm an Olympics nut. I love, you know, I'm like USA, USA. I love the, I do, I just love the Olympics. Ask Connie, it's boring, it's curling. i got to watch this. It's curling. Look at that broom. You know, I just do that. I don't, it's like weird. It's sad, yeah, very sad. You know, I I sit there and I watch these things and I'm just like, it's gotten so sickening because they've turned the Olympics into trying to cram homosexuality down our throats. Sitting there watching Johnny Weir. I will not comment on his name or his clothes, but watching, that's the best we can do? We are thumbing our noses at God. Let's try and make what He has declared not right, somehow not only okay. Have you noticed that every single program you watch, there's something, well, you know, they're oppressing homosexuals. You know what the law is in Russia? The law in Russia is, if you are under 18 years of age, no one can talk to you about homosexuality. That's it. They don't beat, they don't jail, they don't do any of that to homosexuals. It's a lie. And the reason I'm telling you this is this is where our world's going. The same place. It's like, God, this is what you said, but we don't care. We're going to do what we want anyway. We're going to oppress the actual real poor, and we're going to make issues out of stuff that you actually have the other opinion on. On the surface, it looks like it's good. But the heart's wicked. The heart's wicked. And instead of them turning to the Lord, they're turning from the Lord. A very dangerous place. And I want to tell you something. This may shock you. If your heart's not right, 
your sacrifice means nothing. He's saying, don't bother to bring your sacrifices to me when your heart isn't in it. It means nothing. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our possessions. He doesn't need us. He wants us out of our own hearts to worship Him in those things. And what they were doing is saying, well, we'll just go down and we'll sanctify our sin by going to church. You hear what I just said? We'll sanctify our sin by going to church. We'll pretend that, Amen, Pastor Jeff. Hallelujah, brother. And then you go and do exactly what you know you're not supposed to do. You can't sanctify your sin. Sin, sin. And it ain't fooling God. And so to them, they were proud of it. They were actually boasting of the fact, hey, we've got some of the nicest churches around. Check these out. You've been to Gilgal recently? It's a really nice church. Yeah, sure, we worship demons there, but it's a nice church. It's a beautiful church. You know, Allah, Yahweh, everybody's welcome. It's a nice church. We paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for the stained glass in that puppy. And I'm taking some artistic license here. There was no stained glass then. But the picture is this. They thought they could sanctify their sin. God saw right through it. And so he sends Amos to them. They bragged about their free will offerings. They lived in complete hypocrisy. It's easy to join a nice, happy religious crowd. It's why some of the most prosperous churches on the face of the earth are some of the most dead churches on the face of the earth. There is no work of the Spirit of God in them. There's no holiness. There's no attention to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What there is is full buildings, full of people who go to church on Sunday and then don't leave the parking lot before they're thinking about exactly what they're not supposed to be thinking about and doing. Got their church bulletin, they're writing down their number to somebody they're not supposed to see on the back of the bulletin. And just so you know, what I just told you has happened at this church. Because I got the bulletin back from the husband whose wife it was wrote the note. The back of the bulletin had her number on it. And it was handed to another man. Didn't fool God. Didn't fool God. Back then it was, how do I feel about this? How do I feel when I go to church? Let me tell you something. If you feel good every time you come to church, I have missed my calling. Okay? Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that don't make me feel good either. Like, oh man, I got some growth to do in that area. Hits me too. Hits me too. If you're looking to feel good, you need to rethink why you're here. You see, the real test is, do I now know God better? Am I more like Jesus? Am I walking the walk, not just talking the talk? Sometimes it's easy to get people involved in in stuff, but when it comes down to their personal heart, where they're at with the Lord, they're still far from the Lord. That's where that obstinance comes from. And there are a lot of good things that we could be engaged in that don't have anything to do with us being disciples of Christ. And so when we talk about where we are with the Lord, the first place you need to look is not at the church. It's not at the pastor. It's at your own heart. Where is your heart? Because God sees that. He doesn't see all your stuff. He doesn't see your Christianese. 
He doesn't doesn't see the stuff in the lobby to where you go, oh, amen, brother, so good to see you. I hate your guts, you rotten dog. I can't believe you. Why do they even let you in here? God sees that part, okay? He's not fooled. And because of being obstinate, the Lord says, you want it, you got it. And we're stuck in those sinful ways. And so verse 6, we pick up the remainder of the chapter. Also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. And I'll break these down in a moment. But he's not saying, man, you're using optic white super bright smile cleanser. He's saying you've had so little to eat that your teeth don't even get dirty. Lack of bread in all of your palaces. And yet you have not returned to me. Notice what he's saying here. He says, look guys, I've been challenging you all the way along. At times when you've misused me, when you've spat on me, when you've done what I've told you not to do, I have actually been gracious to you. And there have been times when, look, I could have done worse, but I didn't. So you went hungry for a while. We'll take the rest of these. And look at this like he's kind of rolling this whole thing off his tongue at once, and I believe he did. Those things belong to the Lord. And I also withheld rain from you. And when there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city. He says, I even took your harvest that was supposed to come in and I destroyed it. Because if it rains too late in the crop cycle, it kills it, doesn't it? The fields get soggy, the crop's gone. I withheld rain from another city while I put it on one. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain on the part, it withered. I even did some good in some places that were true to me. In two or three cities, they wandered after another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. And notice this, you're going to see it several times, four times here. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. He even reminds them of Exodus 11, Numbers 11. He says, look, here's what's happening. I did these things to get your attention. I sent plague among you after the manner of Egypt, and your young men I killed with the sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, look, guys, I wasn't playing. I meant what I said. What I did, I did because, yes, it's an abomination to me. And he says to them, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. He says, you guys had nothing left. A firebrand is a stick upon which the end is burning and the flame is actually out, but you can wave it around. You know, us guys do that at the campfire at night. We like write our names in the sky. That's a firebrand. That's all you were. No fire, just a glow. About ready to, that's what happens when you're about ready to go out. That's all that's left. And yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Most fearsome word in the entire Old Testament, therefore. Now notice what he said. I tried to get your attention. I did good things to you, and then I did everything short of taking your life to get your attention. I destroyed every single thing that you held on to. I gave you plagues. I sent no rain. Then I sent too much rain. I I gave you plagues on your body. I gave you things that destroy your, your crops. All of these things I did to you. And I'm going, return and you won't. Therefore, thus I will do to you. You earned it. Don't come whining. Don't start sniveling. And it's now too late. Thus I will do to you. In the Hebrew language, the statement is imperative. 
There is no second chance now. It's very similar to when you take your last breath. You do not get a chance to repent while you're waiting in Sheol for the great white throne judgment. It's over. Tough statement. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. You do not ever want to hear from God, thus I will do to you, prepare to meet your God. It should scare you to death at the thought of that ever occurring in your life. Can I say to you that I think a lot of people have lost the fear of the Lord? They've lost sight of His holiness. And I'm not talking about you earning your salvation or needing to be so good that God just approves you because you're good. I'm talking about us acknowledging the fact that He is Lord. And He owns us. He bought and paid for me with Jesus' body and blood. Thank you, Jesus. He owns me. And because of that, I owe him my allegiance. I am not my own anymore. The life that I now live, as Paul said, I live in Christ. He says, prepare to meet your God. Behold, for he, notice how he prefaces this whole thing. Look at what he's saying. Don't you realize that I created you? At that mountaintop that your city is built on, I pushed that up from a tectonic plate. He who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who declares man what his thought is. He says, your thoughts, I know them before you do. I tell you what to think. I don't make you do it. But the thoughts you have, I created your brain. I know your central nervous. I know where every last one of your cells is right now. And makes the morning darkness. Who treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is His name. The maker of heaven and earth the creator of the entire universe, the one who fabricated you and me and the children of Israel from dust, says, look, I I gave you all this stuff in your life. I gave you even the penalty of it and then brought you back time and time again. The reason this is repeated yet you have not returned to me, is because it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the second time, it wasn't the third time, it wasn't even metaphorically the fourth time, it wasn't the sixth or the tenth time, it wasn't the nine hundredth time, time and time and time again, so deep and pervasive, so obstinate were they, that every time it happened, they said, forget it, we're going right back to the vomit. Vomit's good. God's bad. And so he's saying, have you forgotten what I did for you? Okay. You want to stay stuck in your sinful ways? Prepare to meet your God. And his name is Lord God of hosts. El Shaddai Yahweh Elohim the powerful, mighty Creator God. I don't want God to say that to me. Ever. I do not want to hear those words. And so you can escape it, and we'll get to that next time. How to avoid the woodshed is next week. (laughs) By learning from your mistakes. Acknowledging your rebelliousness. Looking at your life and going, you know what? I really don't want to learn that lesson again. Don't be obstinate. When God speaks, do what He says. And you'll never have to worry about this passage coming true in your life. Because He's the upholder of the weak. If you're a bruised reed, He won't break you. 
He'll mend you. He might bend you occasionally, but he's not going to finish off. And so he says to them, have you forgotten what it is that I've done for you? And it's not, I don't think it's an accident that he uses, by example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember what they were saying? Oh, he won't do that. Do you remember what Lot was saying? Oh, there's a few good folks in it. Will you not destroy the city? But it had become so pervasive, he said, I don't have any choice. You got it, you want it. You want it, you got it. Both are true. They were obstinate. He had hammered away at them in essence in vain. Again, those of you who have children, you got those things, it's just like, I can't believe you did that again. And you ramp up the punishment, don't you? The first time, it's no Xbox for eight minutes. And then it's an hour of no Xbox. And then you cannot text for a week. Ah! They threaten suicide at that point. No texting, I'll die. How will I know what's going on in my wonderful little universe? You won't. God works that way. He incrementally turns up the heat and He says to us, Look, I've told you what I want from you. You need to do it. I am the Lord God of hosts. I call the shots. I make the rules. You do them. Now, before you get the wrong impression, if you're ignorant, that is a different matter. That's not what's happening here. This is not a bunch of people who, I didn't know God wanted that from me. I didn't know that was the standard. He's talking to people who have heard the truth, even walked in the truth to some degree, and then rejected the truth, not once, not twice, but repeatedly to the point that they had gotten worse than when they didn't know God. You're asking to get a visit from the Almighty. And it's never good. His woodshed has many switches with which he can adjust your attitude. Unrepentant sin is absolutely, categorically spoken of in Scripture. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Unrepentant sin. That means pervasive, unrepentance. That doesn't mean a faux pas. That doesn't mean a minor failure. That means you know what to do, and you utterly refuse to do it. Not throwing out grace here. We're saying when God speaks, He expects us to listen. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And people hate this passage of Scripture. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, Romans 1 says the same thing as does the book of Galatians. Why does God say that? Because he's saying you can't practice sin. You can't practice sin. You can't return to the vomit. You don't get to make your own rules. Nobody ever has. And so when you know what to do, we're obligated to do it. So don't be surprised if he gets out the switch. And ultimately, don't be surprised when he says, Depart, for I have never known you. Because if you stay in your sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You may not like that. You may not like the fact that this, along with other passages, are in the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, 
God said it, and I would be doing a tremendous disservice to the body of Christ, I would personally be in sin if I held a different view. God said it, I believe it. And so, in saying that, the Old Testament and the New Testament say the same thing. You can't live there. You can't stay there and expect God to accept it. If you're ignorant of where you are, hallelujah, thank you for grace and mercy. But if you know what to do, your Bible says, to him who knows it's sin, it's sin. Period. And unrepentant sin has a special promise attached to it. You won't inherit the kingdom. Does that mean that there's any sin that's unforgivable? Absolutely not. But you have to repent. Unrepentant sin is not forgiven anywhere in Scripture. I know you don't like to hear that. Most people don't. I don't. But you can't dwell in unrepentant sin and expect to see the kingdom of God. Don't be obstinate. Don't shake your fist at God and say, you have to accept this because this is what I believe. He does not have to accept it. And he won't accept it. He will make good on what he has said 100% of the time. He's not changing his rules for anyone. Not any group of people. Not because we have a different viewpoint now in our modern era than people had 2,000 years ago. It's not happening. Thus says the Lord God of hosts. Beware of it. Notice what he says. For yet you have not returned to me. What's the beauty of that passage? He offered an opportunity to repent. He said, all I ask you to do is come back. And you wouldn't. I asked you to come back and you wouldn't. I gave you an opportunity to repent, and you wouldn't. I told you what to do to make it right, and you wouldn't. Same thing as 1 Corinthians 6 says. You wanted to stay in your sin. And it gets really, for them, even worse. Because they had gotten hypocritical about where they were. They began to tell God what His Word should say. They began to look at God and say, you know what, because we don't like what you said, we're going to tell you what you should say. And I say to you, our world is in grave danger today for doing the same thing. I was having breakfast this morning with another pastor here in town. And that was the sum and total of our conversation for the most part for the morning. It's like, can you believe how many people look God in the eye and say, I'm not doing it. I refuse. Matter of fact, even though your Bible says it, not going to happen. Matter of fact, we're going to get rid of your Bible. We're going to write our own rules. Matthew 7, verse 21, For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what he was saying to the Jews. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's who gets in. Does that mean you're saved by what you do? Absolutely not. You're saved by grace. But if grace has saved you, grace will change you. If grace is what you're clinging to, then what you're clinging to will cause you to walk with him. Not reject what he says. The Holy Spirit can't dwell in you that brought you into a relationship with God and then tell you something different than what God's Word says because this is authored by the Holy Spirit. In God's covenant with the Jews, He clearly stated to them, I will bless you if you keep my commandments. He set before them life and death. Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says to them, here it is, life, death. What I want for you, choose life. 
But you have to choose it. The choice is ours. The choice was theirs. But they disrespected him repeatedly. So much so that he actually told them that this would happen. If you want to read the account, it's in Deuteronomy 28. He says, if you do this, if you disrespect me, I will destroy your crops. I will cause it not to rain. He told them exactly what he would do to them. And they did it anyway. So he brought them these things that are here in this last cleanness of teeth. He brought them famine. And the famine didn't cause them to repent. Isn't it weird when we look at our world? Look at all the things that have happened. And I'm not necessarily saying that everything that happens on this earth is God's hand directly dealing with man. But I have to wonder at times. Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, endless amounts of war, countless. We are now $18 trillion in debt. When our current president took over, it was five. Five. In five years, 13 trillion dollars, more than the sum in total from George Washington to George W. Bush, we are in debt in five years. Maybe the Lord's speaking. Will you return to me? Famine. He brings them drought. He destroys their crops in verse 9. You looked at what's been going on? Massive crop failure all over the United States. These floods and snowstorms are things that are going on right now. Time and time and time again, God says, you're hoping in that? I'll take that out from underneath you. You want to hope in your political agenda? I'll take that out from underneath you. You want to hope in your bank account? I'll take that out from underneath you. I believe it's the Lord speaking. Because like it or not, this nation is predominantly Christian. At least in heritage and understanding. Everything from our form of government to our laws have a basis in Judeo-Christianity. He allowed them sickness in verse 10. He said, those dreadful diseases you saw in Egypt, if you're faithful, I'll make sure they don't hit you. And yet we can't cure the common cold. After 20 plus years of trying, we have just as many people with AIDS as we've ever had. We have more people dying from heart disease and cancer than ever. Could it be God speaking? Verse 10, the second half, is interesting to me. Defeat in war. You realize since World War II, we have not won a war. We haven't won a war. We're still actually at war in Korea. Don't know if you all know that. But we are at a state of war still. That's why there's a demilitarized zone. Vietnam, not good. Lost the better part of 60,000 men and women. For what? And then disrespected them on top of that. Gulf War, look at Iraq today. It's going right back into chaos. Could it be God speaking? Catastrophe, verse 11. Sandy, Katrina, snowstorms, ice storms. Just when we're about to crest over the hump, another disaster comes. Could it be that God is speaking? Return to me. Don't keep going that way. Don't be obstinate. I'm over here, not over there. And then finally, the most frightening of all these things, the seventh one, is really the judgment of God. He says, look, you've left me no choice. 
Now, I don't believe that's a very wise thing to do with the Lord God of hosts, but to back him into a corner and leave him no choice but to come and take us to the woodshed. That's kind of an ignorant thing to do, actually. For the kingdom of Israel, they had experienced famine, drought, blight, plagues, wars, devastating catastrophes. God, time after time after time after time after time, I said, I don't like what you're doing, and these things have come upon you because you will not listen. And so ultimately, he's going to wipe them out. When the Assyrians come, there is going to be no ten northern tribes left. They will fade from the pages of history. Only Judah and Levi in the south will be left. He made good on it. You see, he was calling them to repentance. But because they wouldn't repent, he then says, that time's over. Now you're going to suffer the judgment. There will be wailing, we're going to see in chapter 5. It ends kind of with a doxology, if you will, almost praise to the Lord in a strange way. When we prepare ourselves to meet God, it changes the way we live, doesn't it? When I live my life so that I'm not afraid of seeing God, I'm not afraid of seeing God. Jesus came back today, not perfect by any shake of the imagination. I want to give you the wrong impression here. But I will tell you this, I'm looking forward to seeing God because I have no fear of what He's going to say to me. Because there is no unrepentant, persistent, rebellious sin in my life. None. I'm not walking around in direct disobedience to the things that God tells me I ought to be doing. So I am looking forward to the judgment of God. Because it's going to be at the Bema seat in heaven. He's not only going to say, well done, enter in, good and faithful servant, but then for those few things that I've done that have actually been extraordinary for the kingdom, there will be a reward. I'm looking forward to that day. So the choice is ours. Live for Him. Die to ourselves. Receive the reward. Live apart from Him. Please ourselves. Live apart from Him. Now to me, that's not a tough choice. As Paul said, I count it all as lost that I might gain the excellency of my Savior Christ. Whatever it is you give up, it'll be worth it. Whatever you have to forsake, it'll be a great trade. You see, because only He can turn the dawn into darkness. Only He can tread the mountains. Only He is omniscient. There's nothing we can hide from Him. And He is the Lord of hosts. The armies of heaven are His. And he's coming back one day. And when he does, he's coming back to defeat sin finally. And with finiteness, completeness. You want to be on the right side of that coming. You want to come back with him from heaven. You do not want him coming to fight you. So I pray And I recognize, guys, this is a tough passage. But for those of us who love the Lord and are looking forward to His appearing, it's also encouraging. Because you can say, yes, Lord, I'm trying my very best. And He sees that. Remember, He sees your heart. He knows you're not perfect. He knows I'm not perfect. He knows His church isn't perfect. But He set down the standards whereby we live. And when He says, thus says the Lord God of the hosts is coming. We can look forward to it. Not be afraid of it. Not worry about it. Because we're right with Him. As imperfect as our rightness may be, we're still right because of the blood of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to not be obstinate.
Lord, help us to not bury our heads in the sand. Lord, help us to always do what your word says as best as we possibly can, Lord. We know that we have struggles, but Lord, struggling is different than looking you in the eye and saying we're not going to do it. Having an issue that's tough to overcome is very different than telling you you can't overcome this. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice and to heed your voice. We bless you. We honor you. We give you our lives. Take our our difficulties, Lord. Take our difficulties and help us, Lord. We need you to help us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your goodness to us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen to Amos.